the things that I kind of realized early on in my career was there's so many stories that are coming to people every day. And, you know, you're not only fighting for people's attention spans, but in some ways, at least I feel this way, I'm, I'm trying to fight for their memory. That's the voice of Baxter Holmes, one of my favorite writers. Does great work for ESPN and Esquire. Surely you've read some of his stuff, especially if you're a big sports fan. He takes topics and goes in deep. And sometimes it's a unique topic to even begin with. Like, who would think to write about the underground wine culture in the NBA? Or the fact that peanut butter and jelly sandwiches have had a renaissance in NBA locker rooms? These are really interesting, unique topics, and Baxter is an interesting, unique person. I'm Jeff Skin Wade. You're listening to Radios and Tunnels, and this is a podcast, an audio format that we're attempting to do the same thing. You know, people are used to hearing their little 15-minute segments and moving on to the next thing or reading their short articles and then clicking on the next thing and moving on, but that's not what this podcast is about, and that's not what Baxter's articles are about either. He's performing a magic trick. He's making you take time to stop down and soak in something that you probably have convinced yourself you don't have time for in the first place. Because that's the state of how we consume our media, and that's the state of how we think about things. He's a throwback in that regard. But man, the results are spectacular, and I know they're always worth my time. And my hope is after hearing this conversation with Baxter, you seek some of these articles out. Whether it's the amazing stuff about Greg Popovich building culture in San Antonio through elaborate dinners with incredible wine menus that he himself cultivated, or his amazing piece in Esquire on the L.A. food writer Jonathan Gold that touches not only on mortality, but how you spend time in your life. I was super excited that he took the time to talk to me, and in true fanboy fashion, the conversation begins with me telling him how kick-ass he is. You are excelling at long-form feature writing in a day and age where people are trying to get things quicker and they're not doing as extensive amounts of reading and they're reading on smaller screens and all these things that I'm sure you've thought about and talked with editors and, and all that. So that's kind of where I want to start with this conversation is uh, what are the challenges or, or what kind of goes into doing some of these longer pieces that you do uh, in the day and age with which you do them? I mean, they're incredibly difficult um, in some, I mean, look, the job is difficult. It doesn't matter what you do. If you are a newsbreaker like Woj, if you're um do analysis like Zach Lowe. You know, I'm, I'm naming my colleagues, obviously. Mm-hmm. Jackie McMullen gets pulled in a ton of directions with TV and 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 everything else um, and podcasting, and so it's all very difficult. But with respect to this, you know, in-depth storytelling, um, it's very time-consuming. You're interviewing people sometimes, many many times over again, trying to get a little bit closer to. You know, if it's the truth, if it's more details about a particular thing that happened, a particular scene, or you're trying to get to the heart of actually what the story is, um, you're doing, you know, in my case, I'm kind of obsessive, so I'll do as many interviews as I can with as many people who might have any information. A lot of it, some of it may make the story, a lot of it may not, but it will help inform kind of what the story ultimately is. And I'm very, very... um, uh, grateful to anyone who reads this kind of work in today's day and age because I know there's a million things pulling at people's attention and the easiest thing for a reader to do um, is and always has been just to stop reading and so as the writer you always have to make sure that you're earning their their um, attention and, and uh, deserving it with every single sentence 
And that's probably harder than ever with all the million things that people can do, you know, especially on their phones. Um, so I don't take that lightly. And I'm very, very, I, I, in some ways, it probably pushes me to report harder and deeper to get better and more compelling information to assemble it. Um, and uh, yeah, but it's, it's the kind of, you know, it's, it's, you definitely have to have kind of a constitution for it. Um, and, and knowing that a certain project may not come out for a year or even two. Uh, and in, you know, plowing ahead while working on other things and just kind of diligently making progress, whatever the case may be, to get that story and to get the full story, um, that's uh, that's a that's a huge challenge as well. You, you, I mean, you always want to get to the heart of it, and sometimes it can take quite a while to get there. Well, I didn't bring you on here to kiss your ass, but you're spectacular at this. And, and for the reasons that you just laid out, and I don't know how cognizant you are of all this, but... There are a million different things that you can read. Like you mentioned Zach Lowe, and I'm a basketball nut, and I love reading Zach Lowe's stuff, but he does he goes deep, and sometimes I'm preparing for the radio show, and I'll get halfway through a Zach column, and I'll go, I'll get back to this later, and I never do. But I almost never, ever, ever, ever put down your piece until I'm finished with it. And And there's a lot of different reasons for that. One, I mean, I think – The way you think about things is maybe I'd like to maybe I'm complimenting myself. I think it's the way I think about things. And so maybe that pulls me in. But there are so many different styles of things that you've written about. And I think they're all excellent. So I think the next question I want to ask you is how many things you have going at one time. And the the reason I ask this is the timeliness of the Lakers dysfunction piece that you just wrote that just came out a couple weeks ago in which you detailed all the turmoil going on with the Lakers, and it's very timely, and you obviously had knowledge of it and had already been working on something, but how quickly does something like that come together? And obviously you have editors at ESPN, they're pushing, hey, we need to get this out, knowing you probably have other things that you're working on simultaneously. Yeah, well, first of all, I wanted to say thank you for the really kind words um, that you just said about you know someone... Uh, you know, it, it, reading, starting a story of mine, you almost always like finish it because I know mine are a commitment. And I, I wanted to briefly touch on that before we get into how many stories I'm working on, which is a yeah. lot at once. Right. Um, so one of the things I've always been fascinated by is any kind of written story or uh, a podcast or a movie where you get so caught up in it, it's like time disappears. And you just get you caught up. You get caught up in the story. You know, you, you go into the movie, and it's it seems like it's over. Uh, you know, you're just like so caught up in it. It's like mm-hmm. nothing else in the world is there. Right. Certainly, I've read tons of stories that are that way. Um, it's a lot of art form can be that way. You can walk into a museum, you get caught up in just the artistic creativity of something. Um, there's a lot of different experiences. Being at a concert, whatever. And uh, I, with respect to the story that I'm te- that I'm often trying to tell, and I think this is probably true in a lot of these movies. Is I think you have to have really compelling characters, and you know the one the one thing that um, connects us all is that we're people. And so I'm, my stories are often just stories about um, people. It just so happens that they're involved in sports, and I think the human element is often. If you look at my stories, you'll see a very common theme that is, you know, they're not necessarily stories about basketball players so much as they're stories about. Uh, people that play basketball or people that are involved in basketball. and But there's human elements I'm trying to tie through all that, and I want people to get to know them on a human level. 
And I think once you're able to do that um, in some ways that there's a connectedness to them and you will, there's maybe a a stronger chance that you'll stick with the story, so to speak. I certainly feel that in a lot of the work that I read is that once you get to understand somebody, you're kind of along for the journey in a way. And so that's something I'm often trying to do. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, it means a lot that you said that because I, that's something I'm probably trying to go for. I'm really, I'm really wanting you to get, you know, through the whole story in one sitting. And it's, it's my job to make it as compelling as I can. And in some ways I'm trying to make it as human as I can and for you to feel connected to them. And so you're, you're almost, um, uh, there's a certain word I'm thinking of, but yeah, you're just connected to them. Anyways. Well, hold on. I want to, I want to say, I want to say something about what you just said, because you made me think of about of a million different things there. And I read the majority of the stuff I've read by you, I have read on my phone. But I'm 48 years old, so I grew up reading the paper. In fact, I'm the nerd that still listens to vinyl records, which means you have to pull it out and put it on the thing and go back and sit down and then go back over when the side's over. But your stuff is so good, I'm I'm you know sitting there reading it on my little bitty phone or whatever. But you said something that that just resonated with me. Why I think I like your story so much because you compared it to whether it's a painting. Or, I mean, in the day and age, like, things have changed, right? And everyone is into binge television, right? The Netflix series and all these different things. But if there is a, whatever the cultural artifact is, if you think about it the next day or the day after that, I think that's the storyteller doing his job. And there's been so many different things. I'm, later, we're going to talk about the Jonathan Gold thing you wrote. Man, I thought about that for days. And I retweeted it, and people were hitting me up going, hey, that reminds me. That, that's the thing. If you can tell a story or describe people or present people in a way to where someone's going to think back to that, think about all the crap that's going on in the modern world and how many things are coming at you. But if you write or produce or direct or score or whatever something that someone is thinking about two days later when it's not in front of their face, that's that's the key to me. That's someone has actually done their job. And that's what, you know, when you brought up films and stuff, what it reminded me of. Right. Well, yeah, I want to say something quickly on that. So, you know, one of the things that I kind of realized early on in my career was there's so many stories that are coming to people every day. And, you know, you're not only fighting for people's attention spans, but in some ways, at least I feel this way, I'm, I'm trying to fight for their memory. Um, hmm. And if you tell, so if I look back at certain events um, or even certain individuals, there's often maybe only one story that I'm really going to think of. Um, you know, like when I think of 9-11, I think of Tom Junod's piece in Esquire, Falling Man, which is a remarkable, it's one of the greatest magazine stories ever. It's harrowing, it's gut-wrenching, whatnot. You know, when I think of Newtown, I think, of, I know I'm just naming like tragedies, I'm, I, I'm, there's a lot of other things, but I think of Eli Saslow's piece in the Washington Post, Into the Lonely Quiet, mm-hmm. which is, again, I'm, you know, and I can think of a lot of different points in time or things. Um, where there's one, you know, when I think of like the great magazine profile, I think of Frank Sinatra as a cold by Gay Talese. There's, and these stories are, so, there's so much effort. There's so much, um, uh, you know, the reporting is so in depth and it's, you can tell there's just an incredible amount of work, but at the end of the day, those become the definitive stories mm-hmm. about those things. And they, they resonate, they stay with you. And I've always been really fascinated by that too. The, the art of, I guess being definitive and I look, I think you certainly anybody, when you do a story, you want to do it well enough that someone can't 
just come over the top of you and do that story again and do it better. Right. You know, you want to do it so well that, that maybe nobody else can. Um, a lot of the people whose work I admire the most, uh, you know, is, is like that. When I think of um, a story about, like, exploring, I think of David Grand's work, you know, whether it's the Amazon or the Antarctic. Um, so there's certain there's cert- or earthquakes. I think of Catherine Schultz's uh, New Yorker piece about, uh, which won the Pulitzer National Magazine Award, about, you know, I think it was called the really big one about the Pacific Northwest potentially being destroyed by an earthquake. So right, right. There's, yeah, so like all of these stories, you name them off the bat, and people are like, absolutely, I remember reading that, and maybe I remember where I was when I read it. Like, it stays with you in a way. And mm-hmm. I think about that in today's day and age where um, a lot of people are, it's hard to stay with people because so many different things are coming and going with a million miles an hour and whatnot. But I've been fortunate to have written some stories that for whatever reason people say stay with them. And that's probably what I'm trying for in a way. So I do want to write something that is memorable in, in a way for being like a really good story or something they didn't get anywhere else or something, something that touched them in some way. And I think those are the most satisfying stories. They're, I mean, they're certainly satisfying to me. I mean, I, you know, and it, it does help make it feel a little bit more worthwhile. All the, you know, the hundreds of pages of notes or interviews or all the effort it gets, to take one single detail, um, all of that stuff, it does make it feel a little bit more worthwhile. But yeah, I'm, I, I think I'm, I'm really am trying for people's memory, and not just in, you know, a year, but in over the course of several years. I, I hope that some of the stories I write will hold up over time, and people will look back fondly. I mean, you never know. You can only do the best job you can, and then. If you report the heck out of something and it's a compelling idea and there's really good information, things tend to work out in the end. But, um, but yeah, I mean, what you just said, like, you know, something's staying with you, like all my favorite stories are like that. I could rattle off, a, you know, I just rattle off some, I could rattle off a ton more, but I, the, to me, that's the most worthwhile pursuit. Yeah. Um, is something something of that nature. And the, the other thing too, that's kind of striking me is funny is I asked you a question and then I took you in a completely different direction and I'm going to pull you back to it, but it, what it reminded me of, I got a buddy that shot a documentary over several years, and he had so many hours of footage, he had no idea how to organize it. Like, he was buried under the weight of his work. He was buried under the weight of everything he'd shot. He couldn't even, didn't even, and he had some compelling stuff in there, but he no, no longer knew where it was. And so uh, staying organized or keeping your your notes together when you talk to so many different people, and I'll bring you back to my original question is how quickly that Laker dysfunction piece came together. Sure, sure, sure. But how do you uh, sort of keep yourself organized knowing that you have so much copious notes and so many copious notes and different amounts of information about what you're ultimately trying to articulate? Sure, yeah. So there's tons of Google Docs for me, and hopefully within those certain things are being organized maybe into potential themes or you know, all this pertains to this type of thing or that type of thing. You know, the Lakers story I started on, I think, last February or March. And I didn't work on it, you know, only that over the course of however, you know, many months or close to a year. Um, I guess it was actually more than a year. But, you know, I'm working on many things over the course of that time, um, some of which has come out, some of which hasn't come out. But I just, I have a lot of, you know, I try to have a lot of irons in the fire at once. And, Part of that is, is, and I'm just, you know, in some ways I'm trying to push things forward. So I'll, you know, be as organized as I can and 
trying to, on a certain day, tell myself, you need to do this thing for this story, this other thing for that story, this other thing for this story. It might be something as simple as like trying to connect with someone in the hopes that they'll talk and maybe you can gather a little bit more information that leads you in the right direction. Or, you know, when you go down certain roads of things, you might be, might be a story or you think might be a story and they're not, um, or they're not as good enough of a story or something like that. You know, certainly there's conversations on my end with editors and we're discussing ideas. We're discussing, um, uh, maybe what's a better version of the idea mm-hmm. and then, you know, what's doable, uh, over a certain time frame. you know, certain things are, you got to do them and however long they take, they take certain things, you know, you, you, because of deadlines or certain time frames for when they could possibly be published, you got to get them done and uh, they take top priority. But, um, I try to be as organized as I can, you know, the nature of the NBA, um, and, is is hectic as we as these last whatever week is week has shown. I mean, it always shows it, but it it it's just another reminder. So you got to be able to adjust on the fly, and uh, and so on. But I often have more ideas than I'm able to. Um, you know, I'll, I'll try to find as many as I can. There's things I'm like, oh, that seems interesting. There could be a good idea there, or a good story there. And but you can only do what you can do, you know, under the time frame that you can do it at. Um, and you don't want to be, you don't want to sacrifice other stories because you take on too many. So you, there's a, there's a balance that has to be struck and you're not going to be able to write everything that you want or maybe every great story that you think you can. You just, you, you devote yourself to what you can, to what you can do and what you can think you do well and try to bring those things to the finish line and, uh, you know, get some sleep somewhere in there. Right. You, you, and you talk about deadlines, but the other thing that I, maybe we'll get to in a minute, but in the modern day and age, let's face it, there's going to be budgets and, and hey, we need this or this is going to get more clicks or whatever. But I'm interested on time frames because the magic suddenly resigning expedited you finishing that Laker piece, I would imagine. I mean, but you said you started it last year and it's clear in the writing. What was the impetus for you going, hey, there's some Laker dysfunction I need to explore here? What was the initial catalyst for that? Yeah, so I... I think it was after the, the Dallas Mavericks story came out in Sports Illustrated about their their culture there. It's obviously, you know, very some very troubling things in that expose. Right. That a source reached out to me. I'm trying to think. This is about a year ago, so I'm hoping I remember this correctly. But a source reached out to me and said something to the effect of, "If you want to take a look at an organization where there's some troubling things going on, you should take a closer look at the Lakers." And I just, I you know, I made some initial phone calls. I started to gather some information. During the course of the summer, I believe I was working. I had some other big things I had to work on. I had some personal stuff I was going through with my family. Um, and then I, I remember coming back to it in the fall, and things really picked up steam then. And um, we kind of went from there. But, you know, that's often how a lot of stories start for me. I might read a paragraph or I might hear something from someone or – you know, it's been it's it's actually interesting. If I look back to the origin story of like some of my stories, it's often a very very small thing. And uh, um, you know, you lift up one rock, and there's like a little bit more there, and then you kind of follow down the pathway of wherever it might lead. And it's, it's so the journeys of some of these have been really interesting. And sometimes some of, another theme of some of my stories is often it's a journey, probably for the readers too, if it's learning about you know Greg Popovich and how it was he came to be this kind of the the legend of his, or the his culinary legend and team mm-hmm. dinners or something, or if it's how 
you know, the Spurs or the Warriors offense was first formed or something. I'm, I am often trying to take people on, on something of a journey to help them understand something. And, uh, it can definitely take time to, you know, explain some of that. So did the, um, did the sudden resignation of magic, did your editor suddenly go finish that Laker thing now? Well, like what? What did that lead you to do to finish the story? I guess I should ask. Well, I mean, I had been working on it, you know, for a long time, and I think there were different versions of it, drafts of it that were either complete or close to complete. Um, some of these decisions go above my head, but I remember that you know the, the story kind of focused on the last two years, or, or basically what the Lakers were like under. Uh, and how the the culture and everything had changed under Rob and Irvin. And honestly, the the resignation, his resignation just fit into that. And look, there was stuff that continued to happen thereafter. Luke leaving, um, you know, Frank Vogel coming in, and then Irvin going on our air and saying everything he said. Hmm. So there was plenty of points at which it kind of fed into the story. Um, And in some ways for me, it just felt like keeping up with it all. Okay, so there's so much of the ESPN sports stuff to get to, but I don't want to strictly talk to you about that because, uh, okay, so I went the day that I decided that I was like, you know, because I've been talking about doing this podcast for a while and this is stuff I wouldn't normally do on the radio show. But the day that I was like, I want to talk to Baxter Holmes about long form pieces was when I read your Esquire piece about Jonathan Gold. Now, a lot of our listeners probably don't have any idea who he is, but I know that he's a legend in L.A. and someone that you looked up to. But he was a food writer who you had connected with. And when you originally connected with him, you didn't know that he had health issues, correct? No, and I don't actually believe that he did. Um, he His his diagnosis, uh, or, or once he went to the hospital, he was diagnosed with cancer and then died almost immediately thereafter. Mm-hmm. So actually, I think at the moment when he went, met me, if he, if he, I mean, I don't think he would have been at the event where we were at if he was as ill as he would then become. Um, but I don't even know if he was, is it was ill at all, but yeah, we met and I think he, he tragically passed away. I want to say within a month or a month and a few weeks of that, it wasn't too long after. Um, I mean, we had been, Talking and I mean just for background for readers. So he was the Los Angeles Times food critic, formerly critic at, at um, for Gourmet Magazine, for LA Weekly. He's, he's the only food uh, writer, food critic to have ever won a Pulitzer Prize. He's mm. got I think six or seven James Beard awards. He's one of the most revered um, journalists, critics in the history of the business. How long and, had you? How uh, long had you been aware of him? Oh, I mean, I I think the minute I moved to L.A., I remember I picked up L.A. Weekly and I'd read him and I'd never read writing like that, hmm. which is true from a lot of people. They, you know, when they read him, it's like he was so poetic, so descriptive. You you couldn't stop reading his work. It was I didn't care anything about food, to be honest with you. But I was just like, wow, I've never read writing like this before. So, I mean, and being in L.A., like everybody knows who John, he was. I mean, again, when he died, they all these major buildings in the city from city hall to LAX to important structures, like turned their lights gold in honor of him. He was, and and, you know, how many people matter enough to any city where the entire city basically mourns um, their passing in such a way. He was, yeah, it's tough to put into context how important Jonathan Gold was to Los Angeles, but, and really just to a single community of like 
the world of culinary um, or the world of uh, uh, food or whatever. He was he mattered a lot. So, yeah. And and the thing that really struck me, and I, it was an amazing piece, uh, and the thing that really struck me is how it tied back to your own life in a lot of ways because as a writer, you were excited that another writer knew who you were and thought you were good, and I know what an exhilarating thing that is. You like you run home and tell your wife, oh, my God, or in this case, you know, she's there. But you also have uh, a personal cancer situation going on in your life with your mother, and that that we talked at the beginning of this about the humanity of all this and what brings everybody together. There's no way there's not a, a, there's a person walking that has not been touched by cancer one way or the other, and in some regard – that that piece to me is about a legendary guy and what he meant to people and what he meant to you, but also just the way that it was touching your life in multiple ways and how personal it was. Yeah, and over the course of the year, I think as I reflected back on it, um, I was able to better understand the perspective of you know what he went through and the and cancer, the way it affected my mom the way it made me appreciate time with people and especially time when, when, you know, it, it, it feels like it's a ticking clock in some ways and how fickle time is. And, uh, and you know, like, uh, for the people who haven't read it, that's, I mean, totally fine. It's, um, you know, he had invited me to go, like he was someone who I worshiped. I thought he was a legend, like one of the greatest writers of anything period. And the fact that he even knew my name, like was the highlight of that night for me when I met him um, and he, the last thing he said to me was like, you know, he invited me to dinner with him, which is like, would be the equivalent of, 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 um, you know, as I wrote in the piece, like Roger Ebert, you know, asking you to go see a movie with him right. or, you know, you could, I mean, there's a lot of parallels like to, you know, just name something great or like somebody who's amazing at something and then asking you to engage in that with them. Um, and then he was, you know, he was gone in like a month and a half. And I had had thought about all the things I wanted to tell him over dinner about kind of what he meant to me, what his work meant to me, um, just the, the, what his writing, I think, showed what was capable, again, regardless of food or not. So um, and I didn't get that chance. And that's what, you know, cancer does and whatnot. So over the course of a year, I, I definitely thought a lot about it. It was cathartic for me to write it, quite frankly. And, um, you know, I was I was touched by the reaction uh, that people seem to have to it. And it was a reminder in a lot of ways that, yeah, I mean, as you pointed out, people almost in every, in some way or another, almost everybody has been touched by cancer, which is a really sad thing, mm-hmm. um, obviously, but there's a large community of people who have felt it in some way or another. And that, you know, there's like kind of a collective understanding and grieving about what that, what people go through and what loss uh, looks like when you're dealing with that. Yeah, absolutely. And you you also said something there uh, that really struck me as amazing. When you were talking about Jonathan Golden, you said, and I couldn't really care less about food. I'm paraphrasing whatever you just said. But the stuff, you've written some amazing stuff about food, my man. And I, the the first of all, the peanut butter and jelly story. We, we talked about that on the air. There's not a lot of long-form stuff that we're talking about on a sports talk radio show with four breaks an hour. But the peanut butter and jelly story is awesome, and how it's and and I know Casey Smith with the Mavericks really well, and and I was thinking about him, and you know th- when these guys show up out of college and their diets are fast food and all this stuff. So 
I want to know how the long-form piece about peanut butter and jelly in the NBA came together. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you uh, for the kind words on that one. That was a lot of fun. Um, it's it's a it's a kick-ass read, man. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, it was a lot of yeah, it, and the reaction to it affirmed a lot of things, which I'll talk about in a second. But that started honestly when I was an intern at the Boston Globe in 2008. I was there during the NBA Finals, Lakers, Celtics. A lot of stories were being done, and I remember there was one at some point, either by the Globe or somebody else, maybe ESPN, um, and it touched on the fact that uh, Kevin Garnett had required the team to eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches before every game, and it was kind of quirky, and he was really stringent about it. And and um, uh, and I thought, hmm, that's kind of interesting. And then later, I don't know, five years, I guess, I became a full-time NBA beat writer at the Boston Globe, oddly enough, covering the Celtics. And when I was going around the league, I just saw peanut butter and jelly everywhere, whether it was in the locker room or in the training facility the training tables would kind of vary in terms of what kind of food was out there for pregame spreads or even postgame spreads, but there was always PB&J. I remember just going to my editor saying, I think this is kind of funny. I don't know why. You know, this is a sandwich we kind of associate with childhood. Um, and uh, I just I see it everywhere. There's, there's, And they let me um, – They, my editor, Henry Abbott, who's one of the greatest NBA editors of all time. Mm-hmm. I've played um, pickup basketball with him in Miami. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, you know him. Uh, he was, you know, he's like, yeah, absolutely, pursue it. And once you kind of pull back the string, there was, or pull back the curtain a little bit, there was a lot of good stories there. And um, it was, and then the reaction to it, you know, I was, I was very blown away by it. And honestly, people bring up that story. I probably hear about it once a week. This <laughs> has been two years, two years later, right? Um, but the reaction to it kind of affirmed to me in some ways, like I just thought it was a good story. I thought like, this is something that's kind of weird. I have a, I'm curiosity is a big thing for me. I often just want to understand how things work. Maybe there's a good story. Maybe there's not. And, uh, or why certain things are the way they are. And I remember the reaction to that story affirmed to me a lot of things. One, it affirms to me that writing about certain very human themes is going to draw in maybe a bigger audience than just people who like basketball. And that's something that you'll probably see in a lot of my work. Cause I'm, there's probably human themes there. And then the other thing is like food is a very human thing. It's, and that sandwich in particular is associated with a lot of people's childhood and childhood. It's incredibly, those memories stay with you. I mean, and, and if it's the way that your mom made you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, like that stays with you. So you probably remember it almost every time you bite into it. And that's an incredibly powerful human chord that, those kinds of things can strike. It can be a certain song you hear, a certain smell, or whatever, a certain kind of food, and those things are with us basically forever. So um, that's what the, that you know. Those things kind of react. Those, the reaction to that one affirmed to me, but uh, uh, but it was a, it was certainly a fun story, and um, I was very grateful that people enjoyed it, and um, it was. Uh, yeah, I'm still kind of blown away when people bring it up, but it's again, it happens so often. I just it's a reminder to me of how how popular those sandwich that sandwich really is. I mean, think of uh, think of uh, Bender and um, the Breakfast Club rifling through Anthony Michael Hall's lunch and going PB and J with the crust cut off. It's funny you, you think about uh, when you're a kid at the lunch table swapping food with your friends. Okay, I'm dying to get into this because I just want to know everything there is to know about this, and I'll tell you the five cent version of this, but. The two days before your piece on Popovich and his uh, building culture through culinary uh, adventures, 
before it came out. Uh, to, it, it, that came out, and then I was taking my wife to New York for her birthday. Uh, that weekend, you know, the basketball season's over. The grind is over. We're just going. We're leaving the kids at home. And uh, there's a great chef in town here in Dallas named Samir from Nick and Sam's, real legendary restaurant now near the American Airlines Center. And so I texted him and I said, hey, I need to do something special for my wife for dinner. Give me a few recommendations. And he recommended several restaurants. And so I zeroed in on a couple of Italian ones. And then I got a reservation. And then that night I did the uh, sat down and read your article on Popovich. And you had uh, the restaurant there in Midtown, New York, the Italian restaurant. And as we're talking about this, I'm totally blanking on the damn name of it. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think I, yeah, I remember listening to that segment. So oh, I know, okay, I know the restaurant you're talking about. But, I, but you know, anyways, yeah, but continue. So the whole point is that I read this article. I'm a total Popovich fanboy as it is. I just worship the man. And then getting to go to... Uh, a restaurant that I just read about in your article, but there are so many things that I was thinking about. Uh, one being, my God, you don't have any quotes in here directly from Popovich, so I'm assuming you never talked to him about it, and he's a very difficult man to you know, sit down and do interviews and stuff. How long had you been working on that article to get all the information you got on it? Okay. All right. So there's a lot to unpack there. Yes. Um, Take so us I'll on a journey. Some- yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I'll, I'll do my best. So um, in November, or, well, I'm trying to think. At some point in the fall of 2017, maybe in the summer, I had noticed that a lot of players were posting pictures about wine or talking about wine, and I was curious as to whether or not they were just, you know, spending money on expensive things or if they were really genuinely interested in learning about wine. And my editors, you know, given me, the freedom to explore that. And I, and, uh, I started finding out that, you know, they were actually really, really hungry to learn about this particular thing. And it was becoming a new kind of culture trend in the NBA. Um, and so I started pursuing it with the reporting, but every, almost every time I would talk to people about, uh, the NBA or wine, they would mention like some legend about Greg Popovich, whether it was, oh, he visited this restaurant. It was our greatest night ever. Or this happened or, oh man, his dinners are just unbelievable. And, so on and so forth. And there started, this is in the fall and winter of 2017. There was so much information I was gathering even then that I had to set a lot of it aside because I was just trying to focus on the players. So, and I think early 2018, that's the, the player story came out and I started to focus in more on um, Popovich. And I had already, I was working with a lot of information initially just from my initial reporting. And then I tried to focus more on him with gathering more stories about specific dinners or trying to understand certain elements and, I heard something that there, you know, there are these scrapbooks that he collects. And so I was trying to connect with as many people as possible. And, and yes, I did try to interview him and sent multiple requests to the Spurs. And they, uh, you know, he doesn't famously do interviews about himself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, he didn't break rank for me, which is totally fine. Mm-hmm. And I felt comfortable that I had enough information around um, these experiences that I'd still be able to tell the story. And look, there's a long record of, of stories that don't where the main person is not interviewed or mm-hmm. they decline an interview. I mean, right. some of the greatest Frank Sinatra has a cold, you know, gay Talese doesn't ever talk to him. And that story is, you know, again, it's probably the standard for magazine profiles um, or just like in, in any kind of profile really. So um, there's a long history of that. And, uh, 
that's, I guess, you know, in, in those instances, you're just still trying to talk to as many people as you can, understand things as much as you can. And yeah, there was a, there was a great story there. There were plenty that didn't make it. And, you know, I think I tweeted out a lot of the leftovers, so to speak, about, you know, certain encounters or interactions or certain elements of, um, you know, uh, yeah, so there was a lot there, but that was a really fun one. And the thing that, that I was very happy with, um, after the fact when it came out was that people messaged me and they said, you know, this is a great story about leadership and this is a great story about managing people and how you, um, how in a workplace you can, can reach people you can motivate them. You can connect with them and make them feel like people and not just employees and being able to get the best out of people. And it just so happened that, you know, food and wine had been a passion for him and he, um, uses these dinners, these experiences as ways to connect with people and make them feel like people. And it really enriches the whole environment there. And people had told me that was the backbone of their entire culture and deeply important to the dynasty that they had built. And in a lot of ways, too, I also thought that, you know, it was something that I think his college coach told me that, that uh, Pop is a very intense person and that he's very, very, very intense about anything he's interested in. But his college coach told me that he was happy that Pop had kind of fallen in love with food and wine the way that he did so long ago because he needed some measure of balance in his life. He couldn't just be, you know, a thousand miles an hour about basketball all the time. It just wouldn't be healthy for him or anyone. Um, but certainly with his kind of mind and, and the intensity that he attaches to everything. So um, it was a it was a really fun story. Um, you know, to be honest with you, I, so I was just at a, I'm coming back from the Aspen Food and Wine Classic, and even when I was there. I talked to several people who were involved in different restaurants who told me other stories. So, or, or had like said, Oh, you know, we've, we hosted him. Like we always shut down the restaurant when he comes in with the team and he's amazing and whatnot. So, um, his, his, the, the way he's revered in the culinary world is remarkable. And I don't know. I mean, it's for anybody to be that revered in any world, I think is would take a lot. And if you think about it, he's revered in two. The, we, the way people talk about him as a basketball coach is like, you know, kind of mythical and understandably so, given everything he's accomplished, where he's accomplished, um, and over the, the consistency, you know, of so many years. And then, but people in the culinary world speak about him in the same way. So it's pretty special what he's been able to do. And I'm just honored to, to sort of tell a small slice of that story. Uh, he's such a remarkable man to me. And I got so many follow-up questions. So please, please bear with me here. Um, but by the end of that story, the, the way you ended the story, I, when I, we quick hit it on the air and I was almost emotional retelling it with a lump in my throat, just the, the, the way that he had touched that, uh, the final lady at the end of the story. And I don't have the story in front of me, so I don't know her name. But he had met her, I believe, in a Sacramento restaurant and told her she was going to bigger and better places. It was a perfect ending to that story. But it, it struck me, and I don't know why you put that part of the story where you did. But what it left me with was how many lives this man has touched in a positive way. And, and that was like, you know, you sit there and you, you said people reached out to me and they said, well, this is a great story about leadership. And, you know, that's there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. That's a great thing to take out of it, especially if you are a business leader or a coach or you aspire to that sort of thing. I left that thing thinking about his passion for the goodness of people and bringing out the best in people, whether it's a player or a sommelier or he's tried to impact people in communities 
during this time where everybody fights with each other all the time and hell, I get guilty of it. I get on Twitter and I'm fighting some person I don't even know. I'm like, what the hell am I doing? What is wrong with me? And it's like, I just took out of that. That was a story about passion and about loving people and helping people achieve the best. So I'm curious, why was that the last thing in that story? What you, what you put there? Yeah, and I, I, I do want to say during my the writing process or as I was thinking about the story, I think some of the things you just said were very much at the forefront of my mind. You know, like, I think the table is where pop shows love and care for people and in those settings, like in a way that maybe we don't see a lot, you know, during the game when he can be incredibly demanding. But, yeah, he is. Um, he has an enormous heart and uh, and does want people to be at their best. There might be, you know, wanting journalists to ask him more incisive, thoughtful, genuine question and not just, you know, tell us about or talk about how the team played in the third quarter or something. Right. But, you know, he has, somebody said that to me at one point, like he makes everybody kind of raise their game. Um, but, but uh, I, I was thinking about probably that scene, honestly, as to why I chose that ending of him showing love and care for people and raising people up and building people up. And the, so the anecdote that you're talking about, if for people who haven't read is, yeah, he'd met, the sommelier, she had just become a like a certified sommelier. She was really nervous. She knew who he was um, and was told by her GM that he was somebody who really, really knew about wine. And then they took care of him. She was, you know, did great. And he, you know, told her she was bound for bigger and better things. And it gave her confidence that she didn't maybe have in herself, so to speak, because of who he was and how much he knew about wine and she thought she was just going to stay in Sacramento forever. And, you know, she'd wanted to make the leap to San Francisco, which is a huge, huge stage in the right. food and wine world. But she didn't maybe have the confidence in herself. But she thought about what Pop said, you know, that she was bound for bigger and better things and that she knew what she was doing and she was good and to hold on to this and all that. And so she, you know, with that story in her mind, made the leap. And um, is it a, you know, a great restaurant in uh, Sacramento? And, um you know, I, I wanted to leave readers with that in a way, just the, the kind of what you said, I think. And I look, I think endings to stories are maybe as important as any element in the story, if maybe not the most important, because it's what you're leaving people with. It's kind of the taste you're leaving in their mouth, so to speak. So um, they're, you know, they're very, very, very important to me. Um, like, what's the final bell you're going to ring in a story that resonates with people? And uh, I knew... You know, that that given what I thought the theme of the story was and what I wanted people to take away from it, that that was that was going to be tough for me with all the information I had to find a better example than, than to go with that one. It, it reminded me, too, of another. And I feel bad that I don't know who wrote this piece, but I was reading a piece one time about how Becky Hammond became a part of the Spurs. And there was some, you know, flight that he was on with her and on, you know, he was sitting next to her or something and they talked about everything but basketball. And it, and it reminded me of that sort of thing where he's sitting there thinking, oh, she's going to be on my staff one day, and I'm just going to learn more about her here. But just that way of just, you know, to use a sports cliche, seeing the whole field and, and building this person up. How did you find uh, the lady at the end of the piece, and has she ever reconnected with Pop since that night in Sacramento? It was it was totally happenstance. I was in San Francisco. I'm sure I was up there working on some kind of Warriors feature and, um, you know, I, I'd heard this restaurant was great. So I went there and I sat down, you know, she came over with the wine list, asked me what I did. I said, I covered 
I'm an NBA writer for ESPN, and she was like, oh, NBA, oh, my God, Greg Popovich. Hmm. And then she told me a little bit of her story, and I stopped her, and I said, you know, as I said, as fate would have it, I'm actually working on a story about Pop with respect to, like, food and wine. So, you know, I'm not in a, like, I don't have my notepad here. Um, let's, you know, I don't want to do, like, a proper interview right now. You're working. Uh, so, so, you know, I got her information. I think we talked the next day for 45 minutes and I got the full story, but, uh, so it was, it was very kind of, um, you know, fortuitous or happenstance, whatever you want to call it. But in the same way, I mean, you could go into a lot of restaurants around this country and probably hear a similar story. I mean, I mean, I certainly feel comfortable saying that based on the, um, based on my reporting and the instances that I heard. I mean, he's granted, he's been around for a while. He's been doing this for a while, but the impact that he makes on people, you know, in basketball and food and wine and probably just in everyday life, it's uh, it's pretty profound. I, I've stood on the uh, NBA baseline there for the national anthem at the American Airlines Center for 40 games plus playoffs for however long I've been doing this, a decade. And I have never once approached a person on another team before a game I didn't know unless they were right there. And I was like, I, I joked with Boogie one time, whatever, but. I was so inspired by something Pop had said in the media, and I don't want to go down this road and say what it is, but I actually walked up to him uh, before a game last year, and he turned around right as I was walking up to him. And this was right before the anthem, and you know what an NBA floor is like before an anthem. And we locked eyes, and I was I don't remember exactly what I said, but it's some of the effect of, I just want you to know how much I admire you and, and what you stand for and, and what you're telling people. And, dude, he, he put his uh, hands on my shoulders and it's like he knew exactly what I wanted to convey, and he knew that this was probably an inappropriate time. He's like, man, I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. And, dude, I was so nervous walking up to him, even though I'm damn near 50 years old, because it's probably not the right time for, for this. I want to respect the opponent and respect what goes into this, but he's just he's just a he, – from the outside, he's a very special person. And it's like one of these people that you want to know more about. And you're like, God, I wish I could connect with this person. So what I'm curious about is from, you know, when you kind of got the first inkling, or maybe if you want to go back to your first days in the NBA, what, if anything, changed about the way you thought about Pop through the course of writing that story? Is there anything that, I don't know, made you reevaluate what you think about him? Or is, is it kind of just reaffirmed what you already knew or felt about him? Uh, I mean, I had always like I guess a lot of people admired how the Spurs were so consistently good every single year. I mean, dynasties come and go, franchises rise and fall. Every, I mean, things can turn so quickly. And I was just amazed at their consistency. Like every year you could bank them for 50 wins. And, you know, through the bulk of my life, they were um, a, a championship contender with the big three. And it was just, I was like, man, this is like, it's like death taxes in the Spurs, it seemed like. And it was hard not to admire that. And even from afar, um, and, you know, no doubt you people, you hear coaches talk with really glowing praise about Pop and the system and how they're able to get everybody on the same page. And uh, you watch them play, and it was like a machine of everyone making the right decision all the time, it seemed like. The right pass, taking the right shot players who complement each other so well, players you probably never heard of. And on draft night, you're like, who is that? And they end up being great. And you're, you know, then you start to assume like, oh man, the Spurs drafted that guy. He's going to be awesome. So uh, it was admiration for the system and the franchise and what they could do 
with consistency, and that's not a huge market. I mean, it's not New York or L.A. or Chicago or Miami. Right. Um, so there's admiration there. When And when I started working on the piece, I think the thing that I thought of, too, was um, he could be really – I thought about two things a lot. One was um, the effort that he puts into these experiences, which I'm sure, you know, on some level for him – he enjoys because this is a passion for him and he gets to explore new places and have great times whatnot, but he really cares about making it a special experience for people, which he certainly enjoys, but he also wants everyone else to have a really good time too. And he wants to kind of go back to what we talked about. He wants to make a memory, a great memory. Um, but I also thought about the way it kind of coincides with who he is on the court. And, you know, people close to him told me that, you know, he couldn't be fire and brimstone all the time. There needs to, there needs to be another side to, to him. And this is that other side. And so many of these experiences, they don't, it's not about basketball at all. They'll go and he wants to know who people are and where they're from, what their family's like, what's, what's this like, what's that like about their, their, maybe the country they're from or the, you know, these kinds of things. And, um, he's a very worldly culture, you know, cultured person. Right. Incredibly so. Right. Um, and so I was, I, I, I kind of, uh, the, the way that he uses that as a tool to help connect with people on a much deeper level I thought was really amazing, um, or really impressive, I should say. I try not to say the word amazing too much, because I think that word gets overused all the time. It does. Um, but uh, uh, So I thought that was really uh, fascinating. and uh, But then also just the human balance to it, of, of him. You know, I've come to believe over time, like, for instance, on that NBA wine story that I did, um, about, like, NBA players being obsessed with wine, I, I ran to a... Um, um, a heart surgeon in Houston who's like the top heart surgeon in the city, but he's a huge wa- fan of wine. He mm-hmm. collects a lot of wine. He's really well-respected in that community. But he told me, he was like, I, I kind of need this. I need something else in my life because literally during my job, if I go one millimeter to the left or the right, somebody dies. Right. And I was just thinking about the stress of that. Like you need, I think this is true for everybody. You know, you need something else in your life beyond, you know, your job that helps give you, for some people, it might be family. It might be some kind of passion. This kind of, you know, but you need something else. And, and uh, um, but I, the other thing I probably thought too. I know I'm going on here for a second. Was just the, I was so impressed by his knowledge of it, of food and wine. I mean, you, the way that master sommeliers and I and restaurateurs would talk about him, and the way that he understands what they do, almost at the same level that they do. I was just, I mean, I was. It's not like he doesn't have anything else going on. I mean, he's right. pushing an NBA team um, and a really good one at that. It's a pretty demanding job. But his ability to uh, learn so much and understand so much of that, you know, made me think kind of that he has one of those brains where if he just applies it to anything, he could probably understand it inside and out. You know, if he yeah. wanted to be a surgeon or a brain surgeon, he'd probably be the best. He'd be one of the best maybe that there is. Um, it's just one of those things. A, a truly extraordinary human, which reminds me of another extraordinary human in LeBron. We're going to talk about him in a second. But do you know if Pop read that story and what he thought about it? I don't know. I don't. I haven't connected with him. In the, um, you know, I, I didn't hear from him after the story came out. I haven't, you know, he's obviously a very private person. This is a story about a very kind of private side of his life. Um, but uh, I didn't hear any negative feedback from anybody. You know, even people um, around the organization. So I would be freaking um, out, dude. I would be dying to know. And maybe I over-idolize it. And what's weird for me, Baxter, is that, you know, I grew up in Dallas. I'm a huge Mavs fan. I worked for the team. And for years, I, ha- I hated the Spurs. 
And and then when I found out the people they were and when I found out, hell, they rooted for us in 2011, it's like I did a 180 and I have I have too much admiration for that organization. And the weird thing is I went to basketball camp in junior high in Lawrence, Kansas, when Larry Brown was there. And my coach at basketball camp was frickin R.C. Buford. Uh, mm-hmm. And I wasn't some great basketball player. It's just average. But it's like I have so many ties to that. And Pop was there while I was at uh, basketball camp there. There was this whole summer where Vincent Askew was coming over from Memphis State and it actually put their program on um, probation and blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, I've always kind of had knowledge of their thing. But, like, over the last four or five years, and maybe I've even grown closer because of the things Pop has been willing to say openly about the state of our country and saying it in a conservative military town and and all those things like my admiration for him has just grown so much. I have this insatiable appetite to learn all things pop of it. So I feel like if I had written that story, I'd be like, has he read it? Has he read it? What does he think of it? Is it has, have I done him right? You know, I'd just be I feel like I'd be obsessed with that. To, to your point, I mean, and maybe I look, I've been a, a, I've been doing this for maybe 10 years. At the end of the day, I don't work for the people I'm writing about, I just, I write for the readers. I'm trying to tell the best, most honest story I can. And everybody who's, if the story is about them, it's a weird experience for them. Um, In some part, because it's their life on paper, somebody who they don't really know is capturing it. And uh, that's a weird thing, I think. Um, And uh, so, but all I can try to do is be as thorough as I can as detailed as I can, as honest as I can. And, you know, I try not to sweat too much else. Um, you know, sometimes people like stories, sometimes people don't. I can't really control how they can they feel about it. I'm always just trying to deliver the truest, fairest story, you know, most insightful story that I can. And honestly, if I check those boxes, uh, things tend to work out okay. I think that's a hell of a way to look at it, my man. Let, let's move on to LeBron James because – it's funny, I, I got so overly involved in the pop story because I'm a fanboy, but the wine story you did that led up to this and probably launched the pop story was amazing for a lot of reasons. One, it's so great that in the day and age where we, because everyone's so divided, it's like, oh, you know, shut up and dribble and that whole routine. Meanwhile, Here's uh, four basketball dudes that you know, all grew up in different parts of the country. A lot of them are dealing with situations growing up that they're not supposed to come from, and they're frickin' wine experts, which is looked at as the most hoity-toity thing by a lot of society. And not only that, they're crazy knowledgeable about it. And LeBron is so interesting because he can break down plays from eight years ago at the drop of a hat. Like, he's got that photographic memory, and he applied it to wine, and it's not just the photographic memory; it's having the uh, palate or the or training your palate to be able to decipher all these different things. The NBA wine story was freaking awesome, dude. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. What what as you went uh, down that path? I, I how much did you know going in, and just what, what was your thought about LeBron James after you emerged from the other side of that that piece? I, I thought that. Well, I mean, some of my colleagues had written this before, but just he has, you know, I mean, you touched on it a little bit, a brilliant mind. You know, we get caught up in his stature, and he's so big, and he's so strong, he's so fast, he can, he's an unbelievable player and everything, but he, he does have a brilliant mind. Like, his recall, his ability to process information. I think at one point in the story, um, 
the uh, I think it was Kevin Love who said like he's got like a you know a computer for a brain or something mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so that was kind of one of my takeaways. I mean, I'd always heard that and I presumed it to be true going into the story, and probably that was true afterwards. And uh, uh, but then the other thing I thought of too was look for a lot of players. There to just reach the NBA, you you know you can't just be a great athlete and get there. There's it's so hard, the the uh, amount of work you have to do and the attention to detail, how much all the little inches matter with respect to, you know, being in position for a rebound or getting an open shot off everything. Like these guys, the hours they put in, it's amazing. So, I think that there was, um, and I I heard this from winemakers too. There was a real respect from them, a mutual respect with the art and the craft of, of uh, kind of building something from the ground up and all the little details that go into to try to make something great, like a great wine. And, you know, then they would ask a lot of questions about the soil and the sunlight and it's on a hillside versus it's in a valley. And how do you do this process of winemaking? How do you do that? Because that is what winemaking is. You know, you're, there's a ton of elements of it that are very nitty-gritty and uh, uh, come down to the smallest little details to truly make something special. And I think players, I think there's mutual respect for that. Like, you know, at the end of the day, you pull a cork on a bottle of wine and you don't see everything that went into it, the blood, sweat, and tears of all the people that are involved and then all this other stuff, um, the trials and tribulations and maybe the weather they went through or this or that. Uh, you just see the wine and, like, look, when players come out and play, that's all we see. We just see them play. We don't see all the hours they spent in the gym or – a whole lifetime of work and all the dedication and focus that it takes to, to do all the little things on the court. So I think in some ways there's kind of a mutual, I certainly came away feeling that, that there's a mutual respect with the, the process of, of making something uh, great and special. And um, uh, I forget exactly your question, but those were some of my biggest takeaways. Are you a uh, drinker? I, I've come to uh, be interested in wine in that wine is a I, the kind of thing I appreciated about it, learning about it, is that every bottle is kind of a story in and of itself. It's mm-hmm. the story of that place, the people that made it that year, what it was like, what the weather was like, what the, you know, all those things. I think that's kind of interesting. And there's a lot of, it's just, I love, you know, stories. So I also think it's interesting that in America, we're coming around to wine when the rest of the world was, kind of grew up with wine at the dinner table or just at the table period. It's, a, you know, in France and Spain and Italy and Argentina and all these other countries, wine was just like a general part of the daily life. And it wasn't in America for so long, but it's kind of boomed over the last couple of years or the last, not couple, but maybe decade or so. And we've seen that expand to the NBA and other elements of sports. You know, there's, there's, I think at one point I connected with um, somebody, might've been like the Napa Valley Chamber of Commerce, but they were, they sent me a list of like all the people in sports who are interested in wine or, you know, investing in wine or have their, their own wine label or something. And it was impressive. It was, it didn't just, you know, start and stop at the NBA. There was almost every sport you can imagine that was represented there and on up the coast, Oregon and the Washington. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely become a more approachable thing. I think in American society, just in general, you know, if there was a time when people just thought it was, uh, something that your grandparents drank for dinner or whatever. You know, I think if you go to like a Wednesday night wine tasting at a, at a wine bar or something, you'll see a lot of, uh, a lot of younger people in there, which is, you know, again, kind of how it always was everywhere else. It seems like except America. 
Right, right. And and I think to come full circle here, it's uh, Scalinatella. I couldn't remember the name of that restaurant for the life there of me. There you go. Yeah, I think when it was I want to say it was Larry Brown who was the one who told me about that place. It does. The, uh, it, we had yeah. a, we had an amazing experience there and by the end of it Leonardo DiCaprio and Al Pacino had rolled in there. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And I, and 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 uh, and I would have not demanded that we go to that restaurant had I not read that article. And it was an incredible uh. experience for for me and my wife. So you're touching all these lives, whether you know it or not. Now, uh, I've taken a bunch of your time, uh, but there's one more thing I want to get to before we boogie, um, because I did not know uh, your background, your Native American roots, and I did not know that you had written the articles, I guess, four or five years ago for Esquire about the meaning of the name Redskins, even though as a sports talk show host, I'd talked about that topic a million times until I saw it listed under the articles when I read the Jonathan Gold piece that you did. And I just want to say that they're amazing because, you know, I'd thought a lot about this topic, but you you brought even something else I hadn't even considered. And um, I know it's a, it's a very broad thing, and I know it's a deep thing, and it's familial for you, and it's historical for you in a lot of ways. So I'm not trying to say, hey, nutshell this right quick, but I, I want you to kind of express if – if someone had never read these articles and they asked you about why it would be personal for you for the the Washington Redskins to change their name and not use that motto, how, how would you be able to explain that to somebody? Yeah, um, I need to go back a little bit and think about it because, like you said, it's been five or six years. and um, Although that was a busy time when – for me, when that came out, I was surprised by the reaction. But, yeah, just as a little bit of background. So I was born just outside Seattle, but we moved to Oklahoma, where a lot of my family um, has roots dating back generations uh, to reconnect with our Native American heritage. I'm uh, Choctaw on my mother's side and Cherokee on my father's side. And we live in southeastern Oklahoma um, around the uh, the uh, Choctaw, the capital for the Choctaw uh, or the Oklahoma band of Choctaws, I should say. There's the Mississippi band as well. And growing up, you know, I'd, I'd heard a lot of stories, um, particularly, you know, shared from my mother, but then from others, about the term redskin and how it had been associated with a point in time in which there was a bounty on Native Americans. Um, and uh, if they, if you killed them and, and brought their scalps in for bounty, um, you know, you had to, you had to scalp them. And so that the, the, Scalps that were returned for money um, were at, at times called uh, redskins. And, you know, there's debate, uh, certainly. I mean, I certainly heard about it after the story came out about, well, you know, the term redskins didn't always mean that. It might have meant that for a time, or maybe it didn't mean that in the beginning. Um, and I understand that certain words don't mean the same thing to all people. Um, but I also know, and certainly heard reading that, that I wasn't alone. I certainly wasn't the only Native American who associated the term Redskins with uh, the collection of Native American scalps for bounty. That, you know, and, uh, and I wasn't the only person to have made that point either. It just so happened I was doing it for a mainstream publication. But I think that was one of the things where I just kind of shared that story, and it was I tried to maybe make it as personal as I could or explain to people why that what I thought of when I thought of that term and how I maybe wasn't alone and uh, things, you know, went from there. It certainly got a fair amount of reaction to it. And, uh, but yeah, that's kind of the gist of it, I guess. 
And nothing has changed. You wrote that four or five years ago, and it's the same thing, and it's the same topic, and it's not really talked about that much anymore. And I'm curious how that makes you feel or if you ever do think about it anymore. Not really. I mean, um, I don't – yeah, it doesn't really cross my mind. I mean, again, when I I was a kid, I thought it would be changed by now. But especially as I've gotten older, I've I've just understood that certain things are the way they are. And in the grand scope of history – you know, especially in this country and at various countries around the world, you know, we look back and like, why, why, did, why was this just that way? That didn't make any sense or whatever. And it's complicated. It's a complicated answer. Um, it's maybe not an answer that makes sense to, you know, certain kinds of people or a whole tribe of people um, or tribes of people in that way, whether they're Native American tribes or other tribes. Um, I understand that. And I guess because I'm a journalist, I'm kind of emotionally unattached to, you know, a lot of things. Um, I just, you know, look at it very pragmatically as the facts of the how, the who, the what, and the why, and the when, and all that. Um, I don't really think about that. Uh, and I just, I understand that that um, certain things are the way they are. And, I, you know, there's a lot of Native Americans who fought for a long time, admirably so, to try to get that changed. Um, and I don't know what will happen. I don't, uh, have any control over it one way or another and things that I don't have control of I tend not to worry about too much man that's a good way to live life I get too emotionally wrapped up in stuff all the time it drives me damn crazy um, alright I'm going to let you go but before we do that what is it that you haven't done yet or written about that you want to oh man that's a good question I mean I do have some big stories coming um, I can't go I can't go into detail about right. them but uh, I try not to talk about anything I'm working on until it comes out but I do have some things that I've been working on that I'm pretty passionate about, um, and uh, I think I think there are a million great stories everywhere. Um, I think there's a lot of great stories that are right in front of us that we may not necessarily see, um, and uh, I'm super passionate about that. But yeah, I mean, I also say this too: I feel very fortunate to be in a position where I can uh, try to write stories or report stories and tell people things. You know, for a living, um, the, the media industry has changed a lot. Even in the, you know, it's been almost ten years since I started doing this professionally. Um, it's changed a lot, and the, the landscape has changed a lot. For, you know, over the past thirty years, a lot of places have closed down, and uh, there's been tons of layoffs and sales and buyouts and whatnot. So I feel very fortunate in this day and age to be able to put bread on the table by doing it, and hopefully to tell people stories that you know, stick with them or that they enjoy or feel is worth their attention. So um, I don't take it lightly that, uh, uh, you know, anytime anyone reads anything I've done, it, it, you know, always means a lot to me. And I'm very grateful because there's a million other things they could be doing. And um, I definitely wanted to live up to that. I want every story to, to feel worth their time. They can't all be, you know, uh, legendary in the same way that some of the writers I read, their work every time that comes out, it seems like it's legendary and rightfully so. But uh, I'm going to do my best to, to um, keep people's attention and feel, um, feel worthy of that. Fantastic stuff from Baxter Holmes. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I did recording it. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about how he goes about doing what he does. To me, it's kind of like the documentary, right? I just think about Apocalypse Now being a great movie. But the documentary Hearts of Darkness, Inside a Filmmaker's Apocalypse, made by Francis Ford Coppola's wife, is certainly way cooler to me because it reveals how it was all put together. If you did enjoy this, we encourage you to subscribe. 
so that you can get all the radios and tunnels delivered directly to your ear hole with whatever platform you so desire. Hopefully you're listening to us weekdays on 105.3 The Fan, The Ben and Skin Show. Thank you to KT for helping me put this bad boy together, and thank you to the Jizza for the inspiration. I've told you this before. I don't know if you remember, but we met at a game one time, and I think Baxter Holmes is one of the coolest names I've ever heard. And not only that, you're at Baxter on Twitter. I mean, that's pretty amazing stuff right out the gate to have the Twitter handle at Baxter. Do you feel uh, special to have been able to get that that early on in the Twitter game? No, no, I don't. Not at all. There's not a lot of, I mean, I've never even met another person named Baxter. So you got to remember, there's just not a lot of competition. It's just me and dogs. That's it.